Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome back to the PetroNerds Podcast, everyone. Today is April 1st, 2021, so I'm positive that Ethan is going to have a lot of things that are uh, April Fool's related for me that I'm is going to go over my head. But this is the ninth PetroNerds Podcast and a lot has happened in the oil market, and I'm really excited uh, to be here chatting with Ethan. Unfortunately, we are not together, if you'll notice. So my colleague back here is Axel, and Ethan's sitting at his home with a lovely fireplace behind him. So uh, we will jump right into this. I'm your host, Trisha Curtis, the CEO of Petroners. This is my co-host. Ethan Bellamy, welcome. And the best thing about not being next to Trisha is she can't smack me, so the jokes will be better today. As she said, it's April Fool's Day, 2021, but there's never any joking with my co-host, so you're all safe from a Volkswagen-style uh, parody joke here. Uh, welcome to the Petra Nerds Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ethan Bellamy. I am across town from Trisha today. Uh, she is the CEO of, of Petra Nerds. In today's podcast, we will talk about crude oil prices. Trisha wants to talk about the rig count. We'll talk about oil demand, Aramco, the $400 billion Iran-China cooperation agreement, I think we might address API embracing a carbon tax. The Indian Minister for Power made some crushing comments at an IEA meeting, and we'll, uh, of course, make many digressions as we always do. So, Tricia, let's start with the rig count. You want to talk about rigs? Yes, I do. So, I mean, we'll just briefly touch on it. I think really next week, next week, I mean, this, this week we're kind of going to devote to oil prices, demand, and OPEC, and all these things that Ethan mentioned. And next week, I think we we'll, would like to get into U.S. production a bit more, but we are, um, and this gets into OPEC, because what, 241 rigs that Enervis said in the Permian Basin? I mean, that's a lot. We've added, we're, we're on a, a steady ramp to 300. And I think it's important to just take into perspective that we were at 125 rigs in July. Um, so at, that's Permian Basin. That was the bottom, 125 rigs in July. So it's important to think about where we've come from, where we're at. And how we've we've continued to steadily add those rigs. You and I have talked about it at length in our very first podcast of how those rigs run. And really, if you start looking at who those operators are, there are dozens of companies with one and two rigs. And I think that's really meaningful, really important to think about is that we, we just have a lot of that, especially at these oil price levels. So Permian rig additions are huge. According to uh, Baker Hughes has, I mean, Eagleford is now at 33 rigs. Um, that was, think about the bottom of that was like nine rigs or like eight rigs over the summer. Uh, and we have 337 total oil rigs running in the U.S., according to Baker Hughes. The number's a little higher for Inveris because they include all the workover rigs and everything. But the point is, is that, I mean, and you can comment on this, but 241 rigs in the Permian, it's a lot of rigs. And we're not going to need 400 to go back to the levels we were at because we always cut off these rigs. So I, I think when we get toward 300 rigs, we're... we're we're not completely back where we were from an efficiency standpoint, but we're pretty close. Well, that's the Permian, though. And the rest of the basin certainly haven't recovered like the Permian. So do you think we are, are have a sufficient rig count to get back to pre-COVID levels? Well, we're not yet. So the, the production data is certainly lagging. And I was just looking at Permian Basin production the other night or last night, and it it's we're still stuck, right? We're Our, our production's lagging. EAA data just put up. 11 million barrels per day for the U.S. We're still, things are looking flat-ish. So the data is lagging, but it's definitely going to pick up. Um, no, we don't have enough rigs in the other basins to grow. I think we, we're starting to get to the point that we can keep, we, we can keep things flat-ish. Um, and that's, I mean, we have kept things flat and as we're increasing that rig count. But think about it, we're not off 33 rigs. You know, we were at 70 pre-COVID. So we're half of that in the Eagleford. And we do have some some chunk of that, whether it's 10 rigs or 20 rigs, are no longer needed, right? Because the other rigs are more efficient. So when you think about it like that, 10 rigs, you're not that far off. So we're getting we're getting closer to the point at which we're, I wouldn't say growing out and out growing on absolute number, but we're getting closer to the point where this is, this isn't just some, you know, pie in the sky stuff. And I think 11 million barrels per day, maintaining that's pretty easy. Uh, and that gets, that, that should start getting us into the the OPEC talk, but I think I'm pretty pleased with the recant growth. I know Chuck Yates and many others and 
David Ramson would 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 say that we never need to add another rig in this country, but obviously we're going to add them and people are going to continue to add them. And I think we will easily go up to 300 rigs in the Permian. Okay. Well, we have a natural segue here. Let's talk about crude oil prices, which have given back $5 a barrel from a local high of $66 at the beginning of March. WTI today, again, it's April 1st, is 61.45. Brent closed at just shy of $65. So first question, where do you see oil prices for the rest of the year? And secondly, uh, how do you assess the trajectory of the demand recovery? I th- that's a great question, Ethan. Um, I think so. Last night, prices were fifty nine bucks, and I mean, and that was amazing because OPEC last night. I I had thought actually OPEC last night was probably going to keep things look like they were going to keep things flat, given the way they were talking about demand outlooks. So the fact that we saw a, a buck and a half or a couple buck rise on on the and the increased output, it's really positive. I mean, we had really really good demand data for the U.S. Like, I mean. And the U.S. does seem to be kind of holding the bag here because U.S. Cushing data inventories were overall good. Refinery runs were good. Utilization was up a little bit. And demand, oh my gosh, uh, U.S. demand, we're on an absolute number. We're hitting that 20 million barrel a day mark. Now we're still off on gasoline demand. We're still shy about a million barrels a day and we're still off on a jet fuel demand. But it's other oils, which are, does include some jet fuel and some kerosene, like things are looking up from a demand perspective in the U.S. And so that's holding up prices to a large extent. And I think that the other thing we have to take into account is that we've had and people seem to be people seem to be sort of misplacing both supply. Like when we talk about demand and we talk when we talk about price, sometimes people are misplacing supply and demand. So if they see prices going up, they assume that's always demand and if they see prices going down. Uh, they assume that supply. And I think we have to be really careful thinking about we've maintained to a large extent, we've had these cuts offline. Um, we're bringing them back on slowly with an OPEC. And the demand side, you know, we have brought them slowly back and we brought these Libyan barrels back on. And the market is telling us, at least right now, that demand looks okay. The US is, is recovering, Europe's going back into lockdown, and Asia's recovering. And we're seeing that that at least for right now, the economic data looks good in China and we're looking at an 11 to 12 million barrel day demand market. And, you know, given all the anger that India is having right now over crude oil prices, it seems to be that they're importing plenty of crude oil as well. And that pre-COVID was over 5 million barrel day market. So I think prices, I'm not nearly as bullish as some. Um, I'm not where Goldman Sachs was on the, the 80 price. We could certainly see spikes. But the fact that we had the pullback that we did, prices ran up to 70 Brent, 65 WTI, and we we pulled that down, kind of should we needed that. We needed this this pullback in the market because it just got a little too hot to handle. And I don't think global demand, the supply and demand picture was there. And OPEC now has to start bringing these barrels back. And this will, as as the oil minister of Saudi Arabia said, this is testing, this will test the market to see how it absorbs those barrels. And so you know, if we see I, the fears in in you know in Europe probably that were a little over overdone, and that's probably why the market's still pretty strong because Europe isn't a huge oil demand, at least not a gro- it's not a growth market, and it, it isn't you know it's it's not that big of a market in total because they just don't consume that. So when you see these pockets of shutdowns, yes, it's impacting it for sure. It's meaningful, um, but it, I think it has more from the outlook perspective and how people are feeling about demand as opposed to the absolute volumes. Do you agree with that, Ethan? I don't think it's a very easy question to answer. Um, You know, demand for me is a function of government policy, which is fickle based on the wind. So if we see a good vaccine rollout everywhere, the U.S. is doing very well. I think the most recent stats were something something very high, like a third of Americans now have at least one shot, which is very compelling to get us to that herd immunity. Then we'll start to see travel. But, you know, you've got a contrast to places like Florida, where they're basically everything is open and New York, which wants to have a vaccine passport system, which is about as totalitarian as you can get. And uh, that seems to be one of the strategies of the Europeans as well. So that's going to govern jet fuel demand. And until we purge all this uh, this uh, government intervention in the markets, I don't think we're going to see the, the, the full pre-COVID demand recovery. 
I, I fully agree. We're not going to see pre-COVID demand recovery. We're nowhere close to that right now. I mean, we are close to that in, in a lot of respects, even with these sort of shutdowns, we're close to it. But the problem is we don't have pre-COVID supply. So OPEC has still, you know, despite Libyan barrels, you know, coming back online and despite, you know, Iran sending another million barrels a day to, to China and all these verse, which we'll get into. Um, despite, despite this, I mean, and so that actually, when we know that data and we've talked about it before, but it, it, we shouldn't pay lip service to it because, you know, uh, Russia has actually, both Russia and Kazakhstan were given those outs in the last OPEC meeting. So they've been increasing output by a few hundred thousand, bar- a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. And so these additional barrels that have been on the market, you know, yes, we went from 65 to 60 and, and we went from 70 Brent and we're back down. But honestly, it's, it's held up pretty well, especially given these renewed shutdowns that we're seeing in Europe. So the U.S. overall is winning. I mean, we are a huge oil market. We're talking about 20 million barrel a day product demand market. So it's huge that we're recovering. And that, I mean, you already have one vaccine, right? I do. I got Moderna and I'm about three weeks out from the second dose. Yeah. And I, I've been looking and I just realized that Colorado is going to open it up for under basically everybody 16 and above is going to be open on April 2nd, which is tomorrow. So that's huge. I mean, the fact that if we already have a third and it's, it's going down, I mean, I think we're going to see considerable opening up and, and we do have it is interesting because as we talked about on some of the first podcasts, I think that pent up demand or really that change in demand and how people, so not everybody is at back to work and yet gasoline demand has recovered to a remarkable level, which means that not everyone just drives to work, that they are driving to the grocery store and they are driving to do things and the weather's getting better. And we are gonna see them use their time between now and when they have to go back to the office. And yes, I think people are gonna, lots of people are going to go back to the office. Not everyone for sure. Plenty of people on Twitter won't go back to the office and Silicon Valley people, but there are other people that will go. And in that in, in that time between now and whatever is July for a lot of these companies, they're gonna be driving and going on vacation and doing all kinds of things. Well, he doesn't know it yet, but uh, old Street Bomber is gonna DJ a party for me once I have very good revenue visibility coming out of this uh, <laughs> out of this downturn. Maybe a, a rooftop pool party in Cherry Creek, we'll see. Uh, so before we move on to uh, uh, some other topics, let's just round out the discussion of prices. You and I were both on a clubhouse call that Chuck Yates and Jeff Davies hosted uh, to titans of the industry. Uh, always listen to, uh, especially Jeff. I think he's he's one of the smartest guys, and we're all lucky that Twitter is free and he he comments on it. Um, they had Zach Lee from Arm Energy, which is a uh, uh, oil and gas marketing company, as well as on some infrastructure, and he's branching out into renewables. He's done very well. He said that in 22, he was looking for for potentially very high prices, perhaps even with a nine handle on them. What do you think about the potential for spiking prices in 22? And uh, are you that constructive further out beyond 21? Well, as you know, because you were on that call and I was also a speaker and I I pushed him a little hard. I thought his price range, it's pretty easy to be right when you have a $12 window on prices. So his ranges were pretty wide. And I I liked a lot of what he said. I didn't disagree with it, but I did this. I mean, having a price deck that wide, yeah, we could have, he basically was saying would have high 50s throughout the year. And it looks like we're going to have, I mean, he was actually in that scenario, in those scenarios, he was saying that prices were going to cool off and it makes sense if you're adding those OPEC barrels back, but that would mean that, you know, demand would have to, either demand is going to have to flatline. I mean, we're just going to have to come in line because we, we have been, we have been pulling out inventory barrels. So, I, I mean, in the prices are telling us right now that we could, we could maintain high fifties and sixties. So he's not off there, but the true that $12 range and the ability that spiking, because he didn't really say that next year was, it was that right. It was 2023 that he saw the real price spike or 20. Yeah. End of 2022, 2023. And yeah, a lot of people are talking about, Amrita Sen was on um, with Energy Aspects was on, on Bloomberg last night about midnight. And she's, you know, they were asking her about, about OPEC countries and prices as well. And I mean, they're bullish on prices and, and all the Goldman Sachs, JP Moore, all these companies are extremely bullish on, on prices and they see this big price spike. They've already been wrong in the near term. So they, they didn't see, we saw the sort of 50, 65 and pullback. And I think the stuff on India that we're going to get into is really telling of they can't have those prices. And actually what apparently we recently told the Saudis um, that prices 
it's important to have lower prices um, is relevant as well. So I think that OPEC was not only getting pressure internally um, because people were going to cheat, but they're getting it externally as well. And so when you have enough noise like that, if it's coming from the U.S., your, your major demand, big demand centers and big demand growth centers, I don't, I'm not sure people realize and appreciate how important stable, you know, low and stable oil prices are for stable demand, not just recovery, but demand growth. And that's something really, really important that OPEC has to understand. So the the best thing that could happen to the oil market for, in terms of a long-term lasting recovery is that prices stay around in the high fifties or, or low sixties. Yeah, I don't see us getting into this sort of quote unquote super cycle type environment unless and until the Saudis are producing consistently another 3 million barrels a day. And uh, in the Aramco results, which came out on November 21st, or excuse me, March 21st, they said that they reached two all time high peaks uh, in 2020. One was 12.1 million barrels per day in April, and the other was 10.2 BCF a day of gas in August. So with that, uh, I want to jump into some questions uh, from our friend Mark Rosano of C6 Capital Holdings, who is probably the most prolific general economic commentator that uh, doesn't have uh, as much of a viewership as he should. Very smart guy. Um, He's one of my Twitter friends that I've made on the Internet in, in 2020. I'm very happy for it. So he has a few questions. The first was, for you regarding OPEC strategy, OPEC plus strategy heading into summer demand. These are Mark's questions directly to me. These are Mark's questions for you. Uh, what was the was the meeting bullish in your view? Uh, and then I'm going to give you the other two, and we'll come back to the first one. So the second one is OPEC overestimating or underestimating global demand, and they were up, then they were down, and then the third was did uh, the Saudis face pressure to start increasing from within OPEC, OPEC within Saudi, or from important customers? So to get back to uh, OPEC's strategy heading into the summer, was that meeting bullish? So, no, I don't. I think this meeting was, uh, it's relatively muted, but I don't think it was bullish. And the reason I say that is because um, their hand was a bit forced. I think that, and it, they, they made so much nuances. So I literally had just put this together last night, but on March 11th, OPEC had said, you know, literally the, the Wall Street Journal headline was fiscal stimulus, vaccine roll, it's brighten OPEC oil outlook demand forecast. That was OPEC demand is that they literally increased their forecasts on March 11th. By March 30th, the OPEC demand outlook down. So they had actually revised their demand outlook down. It was only down a smidgen, but it was in the near term. Now, to me, that was the Saudis, and I still think I'm right here, but that was the Saudis hoping because they, the OPEC plus revised down their demand forecast at the best at the request of the of the Saudis. So that was the Saudis saying, hey, we looked at the demand forecast. And even though less than two weeks, two weeks ago, we thought that it was better. Mm, it's not so good. So let's revise it down. That to me was what they wanted to use to get everyone to sort of maintain the cuts. And I think what they realized was that you can't give Kazakhstan and Russia the outs that they gave them last month. And we have to keep in mind that this is a really unprecedented, unique management thing. And it has it's a double edged sword because you you are doing this monthly, which means you can micromanage it. But you're also expected. I mean, if you have dramatic changes monthly, that's going to be problematic. So the fact that they you know came out now and they not only are they the, the Saudis are, are slowly bringing their barrels back from the, the one million barrel they cut, but they're allowing another million barrels a day. If you've read a couple articles already, the math doesn't quite add up. It's 2 million barrels a day. It's 2 million barrels a day plus. It's 350,000 barrels a day, one month, 450. It's going to be a little messy. And I think they the reason it doesn't read bullish to me is that um, I think that cheating, and they were concerned about cheating. And I, I think people have to really realize that if you look at the, de- if you saw the information on Saudi Aramco and you look at um, the Saudi, how how well improved the Saudi outlook looks, how, how these middle Middle Eastern countries their fiscal outlook so much better at these just even a couple months of these price levels have really helped them just get back to breathing room to where they can they can borrow they can just they're just in a much better situation so the risk for OPEC plus and particularly the Saudis is that this is really profitable to cheat it's super super profitable to eke out another hundred thousand barrels a day and you can actually see it in 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 OPEC's numbers when you see what the revenue they were making when they were producing over 12 million barrels a day and they were bringing in like 6 billion and now they're producing a fraction of that and yet they're bringing in twice the revenue. So 
that's the same math works for all these countries. So when they start eking, you know, adding these barrels back, and that's why it's going to be problematic for, you know, the market for OPEC plus and particularly the Saudis to manage this and just say, okay, we're going to bring all these barrels, you know, we're going to slowly bring them back. And I think that's, it just makes me a little bit, that's why I'm more cautious about these price forecasts that these, you know, Goldman and that, you know, Zach and all these guys were saying was that, yeah, you can have these price spikes, but they are, we're seeing right now that they're kind of trader driven. These, these moves, they, they don't necessarily rely on fundamentals and something has to underpin a $90 price spike, an $80 price spike. You have to have maintained demand and you have to, we have to be looking and saying we don't have enough supply. And I think that supply, as we're seeing with the recount coming up in the U.S., I mean, everybody says we're, we're not going to have enough investment. And that may be true in a few years, but I just don't necessarily see like, you know, as you add these rigs back, as you're doing this, companies are, you know, are going to start doing. Oh, and by the way, if you, you probably saw that, but Saudi Aramco is they increased their upstream investment. So it's not like Aramco is, is reducing their their spending. So it's not like they're not going to have the ability to increase their output. So it just. With that much crude sitting in, you know, in the Middle East, just waiting to come online, it's hard for me to see how we're def, you know, we're we're gonna see a big price spike and the super cycle. And I, I want to get to Mark's question, but I think that super cycle thing is really important because already now the prices are are cooled a little bit. You're already hearing commentary on in the market that it's going to help curb inflation concerns, especially in places like India and and even places like the U.S. So I think that's just an important thing to think about is that you know, what, what it means to have a stable $60 oil price. Okay. And for context, uh, for our listeners and viewers, Aramco said it was going to spend $35 billion in 2021 on CapEx. That was down from a prior estimate of 40 to $45 billion, but up from $27 billion in 2020 and uh, versus $33 billion in 2019. So to move on to Mark's next question for us, uh, is OPEC overestimating or underestimating global demand? You know, they're if you're looking at the like technically what they say, so they'll come out with their their monthly outlook next month, and they're roughly in like they stay roughly in line with the International Energy Agency. So I don't think they're um, you know, they're they're honestly doing the best that they can do. I don't think they're overestimating. Um, they're micromanaging on a monthly basis. So I don't think they're necessarily overestimating, underestimating. I think they're being forced, their hand is being forced that if they don't bring barrels back to the market, they're going to come back on their own anyway. So they're trying to control this to the best of their capabilities and bring the barrels back on slowly. So I wouldn't necessarily read into what OPEC does as a sign of, you know, directly correlating to that to this is what demand looks like, because like I said, they're having their hands forced and we have to be careful. We have to be very careful of separating what we think about supply and how that directly correlates to demand because they're not always going to be together. And like, you know, who knew that that Europe was going to have a terrible vaccine rollout? I mean, this was a Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for Pete's sake. You know, this was a, you know, a European-American vaccine that was developed and yet their rollout has been really, really poor and the, the Germans just, you know, restrained the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine for um, folks under the age of 60. So, I mean, this wasn't necessarily expected, you know, I wasn't necessarily expected that we would have as, as big of an uptake in the U.S. that quickly. But at the same time, I don't think it was expected that Europe would be this poor. So we're basically one of the few countries that's accelerated and in, in doing this quickly. And I think that has created some lopsidedness in how folks are, are thinking about demand. Okay. I'm going to elaborate on Mark's next question here, but you've you've read and I've read most of it, but I'm somewhat less of a Petra nerd than you are, uh, everything there is to know about MBS. So he, I think it's pretty clear that he's calling all of, or at least most of the shots on everything important uh, for the Saudis. Do you think that he has, how do you, how would you think about the pie chart of the pressure that he receives from the U.S.? which uh, now has a somewhat more dicey relationship with him after the Jamal Khashoggi report from the federal government uh, from within Saudi internal pressure uh, or from the customers? That's also a really good question. I'm little, I have so many papers that I, I need. I'm have, struggling to find the, the quote I was looking for. But I think it was the Wall Street Journal that had just posted uh, that it, with regards to their OPEC comments. I think they had just made a comment about 
are the Secretary of Interior making a call to Saudi Arabia in mentioning the importance of stable oil prices, but then it was clarified that they didn't talk about, uh, they weren't talking about oil prices on the market, So, but that was an offhand thing. I think, um, I, well, one, I think Mohammed bin Salman controls the market. I mean, it's very clear from, if you've, if you've followed him, you know, and I, I had followed him prior to when the books came out. I mean, the book MBS and the book, uh, Blood and Oil, which you've read as well. And I recently was just listening to Blood and Oil, so it's fresh in my mind. But it's very clear from those that he's definitely driving the, I mean, he controls most of the market. Like he literally was running in the head of Aramco, essentially, if he wanted to call the shots, he could. And that was years ago. So a lot of people, and they may not, they may not appreciate that listening to this podcast, but it, it's very true. So if you do your research on Mohammed bin Salman and you do the research on on Saudi Arabia, this has only taken place really since his, his reign in the past five years of really this this massive change in leadership and, and control. So it is partly why we saw that big, obviously, blow up last, you know, last March with, with the Russians, because he was sort of in charge and we, we had, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, um, Putin and Xi Jinping are extremely similar in their autocratic behaviors. Um, and they you push them too hard and, and that's sort of what they do. So whether or not, you know, how hard he's being pushed, it's real. I mean, he's also a businessman. That's why he, he works so well with um, well with Trump, I think. So he's definitely being pushed in the sense of, of they're managing the market. And I'm sure that he is directing and talking with that oil minister, you know, really, really closely of saying we're, we're going to, you know, manage this to do the best we can. It's also really clear that how important it is to have money and to balance the budgets. He can't achieve anything he wants to. And obviously his grand 2030 vision is is definitely not materializing the way he had envisioned it, but partly that's because he just doesn't have the capital to do so. So it's important for him to recover oil prices, get stability, and then be able to, I mean, they just borrowed a bunch of money at negative interest rates. So they were able, I mean, they've been able to get the capital. It's also important to to think about how much they are, you know, that VAT tax, you know, we've mentioned it before, but it's huge. I mean, it's a it's a 15%. I mean, their VAT tax is 15%. They have inflation within the country, which is not good, but I mean, it did, it did stabilize their budget completely. So yes, the people in Saudi Arabia have less money, less money to spend stuff on, and it's all going to taxes, but the fiscal regime has actually, you know, it's it's roughly half and half for, for oil and other revenue. Now oil and other revenue is, is is coming from the Saudis. So I mean that's I think it's kind of case in point of the struggles that he's in of demanding that. And that isn't going to make the people happy. But I think it's also really important in the research you've done on, on those books in that country. We don't know any, like, we're not hearing that, right? We should be hearing, honestly, we should be hearing that uh, Chinese are really happy about higher oil prices, and we should be hearing that the, the Saudis are not happy about a 15% VAT. But we're not going to hear that because they're going to, they've completely throttled out negative criticism out of the media, you know, so that's, that's a reality. And so it's hard to actually, it's kind of hard to actually gauge, I think, w what's actually happening within those countries in terms of how the people are feeling. Okay, well, let's move across the Persian Gulf to Iran. Uh, we had a $400 billion deal that the New York Times originally reported on uh, between Iran and China, which is for basically a bilateral agreement to provide oil at a, at a lower price. Uh, I think that it clearly attacks U.S. policy of isolating Iran. What do you think the impact of that deal is on the oil market? And how do you think that uh, influences the U.S.-Saudi relationship? So, I mean, China and Iran have had a longstanding relationship, right? This wasn't the first, you know, they love to ink deals. It was nice to have the photo shoot with the two guys holding their, you know, their folder, the, the design folders and everything. Last summer, the, I encourage you to like Google it. There's a big New York Times article on that big, that, that was a huge, you know, several hundred page document on the potential linking. And it's, it's significant because... We've actually seen literally by the exports of Iranian crude to China exactly what it what it means for China, for for Iran and China to have a stronger relationship and now can circumvent U.S. policy. It is a huge um, I would I mean, it's a huge statement to the Biden administration and to basically the U.S. in general, what Iran and China just did. And, and the fact that so China is importing between, you know, roughly between it moves up and down, but roughly between 10 and 12 million barrels per day. And that, um, you know, recently they're getting 1 million barrels a day of that. That's a good chunk of their imports is they get a million barrels a day um, from Iran. And it's fascinating because it's marked, those are usually like marked as Omanian barrels. And so what happens is, 
you know, officially, I think it's officially Chinese imports from Amman were 852,000 barrels a day in January, which is, which is hilarious because technically Amman is says they're only exporting over 600,000 barrels a day. It, the math is, it doesn't matter because it doesn't really add up. But the point is basically they, those barrels leave Iran, they go to a port somewhere and they kind of get moved around the water and then they end up back in China. And so we're the U.S. and the fact that we're not obviously doing a very good job or we're not really managing that because a million barrels a day is going from Iran to China. Um, and it really is important to think about because from a strategic alliance perspective, you know, China is very, very serious about energy security. And that's something we talked about in our in one of our last podcasts on China's five year plan and on, on the emission stuff. It's really, really important to think about all these five year plans. And whenever they talk about energy security, is still an element, whether they say it directly or not. But like the reason they didn't increase some of their those standards from an emission standpoint is because they're very, very serious about energy security and, and self-sufficiency. And Iran gives them a huge leg up in that, you know, because it's one country. They're getting all the barrels. They don't have to compete with anyone. This is not we're getting it from Saudi. We're getting it from the U.S. You know, we have to worry about this is literally we're getting it directly from one country. We overpay. We don't overpay. Who cares? Those are our barrels. We get to help the Iranians. We get to screw over the U.S. and we get to show the U.S. that look at this power that we have. And it completely circumvents Iranian sanctions. And it really puts, you know, it doesn't put just the U.S. It kind of puts the world in a, in a position that Iran no longer needs to really negotiate on these sanctions as much because, they have this massive economic windfall. 100 million barrels a day at $60 oil is pretty nice. You know, and even if it's less than that, it's way, way more. You know, even if, if China is getting a great deal, they haven't been exporting that before. So it means a lot. Um, and the ability for them to ramp that up, it's extremely, it's meaningful for China. It's great for them, you know, from a domestic perspective. And it's great for Iran. This is a win-win and it is not positive for the West. Um, in thinking about how these alliances work. And we know that China is, we know that China and Russia back Iran within, you know, whenever it comes to UN meetings and everything. I mean, they've always had this, this, you know, whether it's spoken or unspoken and, and typically more spoken than not, but they always sort of back them up. Um, and this puts the US really in a hard position with, with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia was not a fan of, you know, Saudi Arabia was not a fan of Iranian sanctions under Obama. And they obviously, we still sell, I mean, we may be reducing that, but historically we've sold a lot of arms to Saudi Arabia. We had this uncomfortable relationship with them in a lot of ways. And they, their our biggest arch rival is Iran. And the, the balance of power in the Middle East is still important, whether we are getting lots of crude oil from them or not, because when countries fall apart or destabilize or anything, power struggle shift and typically opens up to terrorism and usually that bleeds over in some capacity. So it's, you know, it has long-term ramifications. Okay, so let's move back to the U.S. On March 25th, the American Petroleum Institute, API, came out in support of a carbon tax, which five years ago for me would have been like hell freezing over. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Uh, API President Mike Summers said, we're not advocating a specific price. What we are saying is that this is a framework framework through which API will advocate for specific principles. In contrast, uh, U.S. Representative Garrett Graves of Louisiana, he is on the House Select Climate Committee and he's a Republican, said, we need serious American solutions that are based on American innovation, resources and ingenuity that reduce costs and create jobs, not a cop out approach to appease the radical left, which I think is about as succinct as you could uh, could say it. So what do you think of the API strategy here? Uh, basically to say, yeah, we will do this if you don't single out oil and gas and you can apply a carbon tax across the economy widely uh, and thinking that that either gets it diluted or it's too painful to actually happen or do they seriously want to put a $50 per ton or pick a number price on scope three carbon emissions? Well, Okay, so I would say just you're correct that, you know, API is saying that health, you know, five years ago, that would have been health freezing over. I think the reality, it, it does speak to the um, what's happening with the energy transition, what's happening with rhetoric, what's happening with investment, you know, and the issue of momentum, everything behind this. It really does speak to that. And actually, I want to touch on, you know, the recent IEA number showing the carbon emissions decline in 2020 and then directly correlating that to to the to oil and which is really what gets back to this. So 
the fact that API has done this, they kind of had to, right? It's literally almost like what, what OPEC just did. They, they are damned if they do and they, they're damned if they don't. But having a carbon price makes it easier for everyone to just sort of work within the system. And I think from API's perspective, they're hoping that this isn't just signaling out the oil and gas industry. It is, I would say it's not, I mean, they're well aware of what, what uh, they're in DC. I mean, and and they are well aware of the things that are happening within DC and, and probably the administration's stance on oil and gas. So I think they're hoping that this will placate to some degree folks within the administration and they can work on getting a number that works and that it wouldn't just be oil and gas. Because as we've talked about in previous podcasts, US oil and gas production accounts for 1% of, of US uh, carbon emissions. So the actual production from this, if you're if that's why you're going at it for from a carbon emissions standpoint, you're not going to get it. However, that being said, you know, it's obviously a huge deal. I mean, I, I listen to these podcasts, you do too. I mean, I follow this, that methane emissions are huge and all these things are components with it, which the industry is working on. And we're hearing, you know, Diamondback and others, you know, buying carbon offset, you know, buying co credits. I, health raising over is the same thing of hearing scope one and scope two emissions in a U.S. independent earnings call. I mean, you wouldn't have, have expected to hear that stuff you know, a couple of years ago. So I think it's the same thing. I don't think it's, um, you know, what everyone would have liked. And I think quite candidly, if, if you were to pull these, these oil and gas, you know, executives into a room and ask them off the record what they thought of this stuff, uh, I'd be honest, I don't think a lot of them are probably buy into it. They're doing this because this is the world that they have to, they have to live into. And I think that's, if, if you get the right, get to the right number, I guess the concern would be that how do you get to that right number? And obviously for the oil industry, they're, they're going to want it lower than, you know, the agenda. If you're on the very, you know, map really pushing on the accelerated energy transition, which says, you know, we have to really get away from fossil fuels immediately because there's a huge fear that if we don't, uh, if we use them in interim, then we'll get stuck using them and then we'll never sort of get off of them. And um, that I think would be instigating and pressure for, for the administration maybe to have to push that carbon tax up enough that it disincentivizes all this stuff. And the, the point of the carbon tax is that it disincentivizes, you know, actual carbon output, right? And so there's a problem in that the way carbon taxes have been used um, to date is they haven't exactly incentivized that. They sort of pay and you're paying for offset emissions. But, you know, I think about this in a lot of ways of these, these, a lot of folks are, you know, when, when Jason Bordoff is talking to BP on, and Spencer Dale in his, in his podcasts and at Columbia, and he's talking to him about all the stuff that they're doing to green the footprint and how they're going, you know, net zero and it's BP green and all this stuff. BP has also sold a lot of their assets. So a lot of these companies literally are just selling their oily assets to another company who probably doesn't have the same standards that they do. Um, and the oil is still gonna get produced and just by maybe a Chinese or a Russian company. So they're really not doing anything other than making their footprint a little greener and hoping that that's going to in a, you know increase their share price forms or, or basically increase their longevity um, in the space. So. I wouldn't say this is the same thing. I just think it's really complex and, and we probably will not see, you know, intense agreement. It, it's a step in the right direction from getting the far right on, you know, getting the oil side and the and and I think the administration probably closer together. But we have to see some um, some give and take, I think. And we'll, we'll see if that that works out. I And I don't know the exact number that that I, I'm no, not an expert on. That. I don't know what that exact number to be. I would love to have an expert on carbon tax and climate change on this podcast, welcome them on here. We can talk about it all day long, but it is just, uh, it's a really complex issue and I don't think it's going to be solved overnight. Well, that is a good segue into the last topic I want to address, which is uh, an IEA meeting where the focus was net zero by 2060. And uh, most of the demand we see for energy is coming from Asia going forward. In particular, China and India are the focus. And at that meeting, uh, Raj Kumar Singh, who is the power minister for India, said 2060 sounds good, but it is just that. It sounds good. I would call it, and I'm sorry to say this, but it's just pie in the sky. He went on to say, what we hear is that by 2050 or 2060, we will become carbon neutral. 2060 is far away. And if the people admit at the rate they are emitting, the world won't survive. So what are you going to do in the next five years? That's what the world wants you to know. And he's talking specifically about OECD emissions and the developed world, which has per capita emissions at 10 or 12 times the rate of developing economies, particularly India. My view is that India and China will continue to focus on what you said earlier, which is energy security. 
the Chinese are building more coal plants and won't have peak emissions anytime soon. It's, it's actually to the U.S. natural gas industry credit, U.S. emissions in oil and gas may actually have peaked uh, and, and are coming down because coal usage is down, which of course may reverse if federal lands or other, other bans on U.S. production shift us back to more coal. But uh, is there any, in, in your mind, is there any reasonable expectation that China and India will take a lower carbon path in the near term? And can and or can the OECD countries stomach the pain from the sort of reductions that would be required in per capita emissions that have resulted in things like the yellow bus protests in France? I, I think it's pretty easily the answer is no. And it, we have to be careful with that because I think that I, I do want you know folks outside the industry to listen to this. And this is something I've been researching lately. And I think it's really important of that. You know, one, understanding what the energy transition is, two, understanding why, you know, this accelerated energy transition that we're talking about, and really how China and India fit into this. So if you're if you're straight up asking the question, is is China and India going, are they either of them going to reduce their emissions in the near term in the next five years? The only reason either of them would do that, if it if their economy slows and they literally use less, that would be why. Or it's in their benefit from an economic perspective and energy um, security perspective to have so much renewables that it would offset some of that. Neither of them are in the position to actually, you know, reduce that. We, we know from China's five-year plan that they do not plan on, on they have some caps that are not binding, but they do not plan on reducing emissions in the near term, not even next five years, but even there is no, they, they're refusing to set um, an actual emissions target. And that's where they're getting criticism from a lot of people like, you just said we're going to be neutral in 2060. And it means absolute nothing. It is not, in theory, it could happen, but you would have to have, have so much coal, you would have to have so much carbon capture on those coal plants. And so you can go to the, you can, this is all publicly available information. You can Google all the coal-fired power plants in China, all of them in India. It's really important, the age of these coal-fired power plants. They're very, very young. We're talking about the bulk of them being five to 10 years old. They're gonna run these for 20 years. And even if they pulled them off online, the, the real thing people have to realize is that China and India have coal. They produce it. We have oil and gas. The reason we are, our emissions in the U.S. are, we are the third largest emitter and we emit a lot, but we're about 5,000, I think it's 5,000 million tons of oil equivalent, or the MT tons, this is the BP data. It's 5,000, right? Um, China, this is 2019. China is above 10,000 in 2019. They've increased. Everybody else has sort of decreased. The, the U.S. led that. We are at 1992 levels as of 2019, and that's because our our actual you know coal consumption went down in the power sector and gas consumption went up. That's simply it. And we because we have a lot of shale gas. Okay. The, a little credit to renewables too. Absolutely. Some some slice of that. Absolutely. Let's and give I, let's I, give I'm, due I'm credit gonna, there. I'm going to get to that because we I, I have the data on the on the power breakdown for all this, and you can you can literally look at BP and other sources. IE has it too. What's the power breakdown by sector for all these places and. When you want to look at the biggest emitters, you should pull up the breakdown of power and you can see that China is 65% coal. And the reason they're 65% coal is because they produce all that coal, so they don't import it. And you should ask the question, well, you know, and this this came up in last night's um, clubhouse discussion, you know, what's the what's the outlook for gas? I'm, I'm relatively bullish on the outlook for gas in terms of, you know, steady growth, not massive growth, but India consuming more because India has imported natural gas. China has about a 30 BCF a day gas market. They import about 15 BCF a day. We export right now over 11 BCF a day. So their import market, and the fact that that hasn't risen, China has built out all these coal plants. If they wanted to build out gas, they could have, but they chose not to. And the reason they chose not to is because they have the coal and that would be silly from an energy security perspective. So when you look at that, when when they're having that meeting, and I think it's it's really, really important to realize this because Everybody is throwing out these numbers, right? They're saying we have to hit these targets. And particularly within oil and gas, they're saying, you know, we have to decline. The International Energy Agency, as we spoke in the last podcast, is saying we have to decline massively in the next five years and 10 years to really reduce these emissions. They don't put a number, an absolute carbon output number on what it looks like to hit those. It's their 1.5 and 2 degree or sustainable targets or whatever they are. We don't know what the actual carbon number is. So tell us what the total number of carbon is now and tell us 
if we reduce demand down to almost you know half it in, in 10 years where is the carbon output and i think i don't know and maybe somebody can sh get on the podcast somebody can send the data but it, it, it bothers me a little bit that we don't see actual carbon numbers attached to these reductions. And we also don't see forecasts for reducing demand of coal in India and China. In fact, the IEA and everyone else keeps it flat. They keep it basically static, maybe declining a little. So they're advocating and pushing for massive reduction in oil because that's what happened during COVID. It was, they saw what could happen. And, and I have this chart in front of me, emissions dropped, uh, emissions dropped by, by several, uh, you know, a decent amount, a, a chunk. And yet in all the countries, they actually it dropped everywhere, largely in the US with, gas, with gasoline consumption and transportation. So basically this was what the world could, could, look, could look like is if we shut down like this. That's pretty scary is that your forecasts are based upon when we shut the world entirely in. So I, it's the, the reality is it's not going to happen and you're not going to, the, at least the American people don't wanna be shut in again and they will continue to drive the trucks and SUVs as they are. So it's, that is just a fact of life and whether or not you want to put that in your forecast or not, some companies like Boston Consulting Group and others, they're baking that into their forecast. The problem is China actually increased during COVID, they were one of the only countries that actually increased their emissions. And it was by a decent amount. I think it was by, um, it was by like some 9%, uh, yeah, 9% overall about 90 million tons of CO2. So it was a deep, it wasn't a small amount because they actually, their economic activity grew. And the share, so when yeah, IEA actually put out a chart as well, and they put the share of basically from 2000 to 2020, and it's basically just the, the share coal consumption and what it looks like. And so you can just see the rest of the world, China, all these countries, China from 2000 to was was about a quarter of the pie. And now they are over half the pie. So in 20 years, they now have over half the coal consumption. So it, it it's really about like dry, what's driving the growth in the CO2 emissions is that it's that coal consumption. And it's really important because the reason, you know, and I, I'm not positive on this and I, people can correct me, I can be wrong, but it seems to me oil gets unfairly attacked um, by CO2 emission reductions because it's easier to abate because they, we have this technology, we have electric vehicles that if you just push it in the market, we can, we can drive down oil consumption. But guess what? If you're plugging it in with coal, which is what it's done in China, and you can pull this up on Bloomberg um, on their you can pull it up on Bloomberg. There's a really good chart that shows you electric vehicles, how clean they are. And in China, they are dirtier than the US, dirtier than making an internal combustion engine car in the US because it is they don't have the environmental standards. And they're uh, pretty dirty to actually plug in because 65% um, of the power is coming from coal. So you've got to ask yourself, why do they do that? You know, is if it's not about coal and then you know to some degree they've reduced the emissions and they want to clean up and they're cleaning up the smog in the cities with those electric vehicles but that tells you two things it tells you that china really cares about domestic supply of coal and that bringing in increased evs helps them reduce their reliance and increasing reliance on crude oil and those are two very beneficial things for india India doesn't emit nearly as much as, as we do, or as the U.S. does, or as China does. So they're pretty pissed at this. I mean, I think they're pretty angry that, yes, they their emissions are increasing. But I mean, we're talking from a power sector standpoint, they're a fraction of what the U.S., you know, they're, they're, they're basically closer to what the U.S. is. And they have a lot, they produce a lot of coal and they consume a lot of coal. They are actually trying, though, they increase a lot of natural gas and they're trying to do this. But I think the reality is, and we talked about this on some previous podcasts, but when I've researched it, it is so, so complex in India. I mean, it is just entrenched and embedded into their economy, and it's going to be really hard to abate in the near term. I'm not saying India has the, the opportunities. One, they just don't emit nearly as much. Those are largest emitter. So I think five years from now, it's going to, you know, within those five years, it's harder. But looking out, they're going to increase their natural gas consumption. So I think we could see them, we could see them reduce that. But Honest to God, it is the it is really important that if you want to increase, if, or I'm sorry, if you want to reduce emissions in the near term, you want to push as much natural gas into the Asian economies as possible into the power sector. That is the way to reduce emissions super fast because that's where the emissions, the growth in emissions is coming from. And that's that's the story. So you can work on pushing, you know, more renewables into the grid in the US. That's great. That's fine. Push more renewables into, you know, Europe. That's already happening. But really, if you want to see the changes in those numbers, I mean, people are, you know, the IEA is forecasting that we're going to see all the change by dramatically reducing, you know, driving, you know, or 
oil consumption in the U.S. Um, and all these places. It's that's not what this is all. It's not all about oil consumption. It has a lot to do with coal consumption, and that's just reality. And the reason it's important to look at those information, the data is. It has serious implications for, for gas demand, has serious implications for gas markets, has serious implications for what happens when, you know, we, you and I both saw the article on The Economist article on the big boom in mining and the fact that we're going to be short lithium within, you know, years and there isn't even enough supply to sort of come back. I think if prices go up enough, everybody's going to mine for it and you'll find it. But it's all, it's not, a lot of it's not here. We're not going to mine for it here. And the reality is we could see increase in emissions with a mining boom. I mean, you, we're, we're going to mine for it in China. We're going to mine for it in, we're going to mine everywhere. And this is just, um, you know, no energy is free from energy. It, it takes energy to produce other energy. And I just think it's, um, when you're looking at the numbers and you're doing the math on this, it's not super easy. And, and thinking that we're just going to reduce you know, if we reduce gas consumption and, you know, and, and oil consumption in the U.S. and Europe, that we're going to solve this problem. I don't think it's going to work. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't didn't India basically say they wanted to see negative emissions from the OECD? Wasn't that kind of the point? Very, very much so. That's their position. Yeah. So that that would be I mean, and they're basically I think that's that's they're just pushing back and saying, OK, well, you know, if you want us to decline, because that would mean that they're economic growth forecast would probably change. That would mean that they would have to dramatically, they would have to spend a ton of money on their grid in the near term, all this infrastructure, and then and build out. And that really does reduce their energy security. China is definitely not going to do it. I mean, they are literally just going to use coal and keep building out what they have. And if they do reduce emissions, it's just a net benefit. It's more of a net benefit to them. But it's going to be increasingly complex because we then you're asking the developed world you're asking the oecd to drastically decline your economic outlook and to re be negative we're already reducing our emissions i mean if you look at oil demand in europe it's 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 been declining for years it continues to decline so all these emissions are coming and then they have drastic plans you know to continue to to change their economies and do this so that's already happening so to go negative rapidly would mean to go negative or, or at least rapidly decline your economies as well. And I don't think that's likely. It's certainly not likely in this room. And it's setting the U.S. up. It's setting the globe up for a kind of a bifurcated world in which, you know, as far as I understand, CO2 emissions do not have borders. So this is not going, you know, this this is a coordinated effort if this is what it's about. And it's going to become very, very complex and messy. And it has just massive implications for investment decisions and patterns, especially on oil and gas and and coal and everything else. Well, it's unlikely to be boring in the next few years. And I think we've reached a natural stopping point. So with that, I want to thank you, my lovely co-host, Trish Curtis. Thank you so much, as well as the McClellan family, uh, Colin and Julie and Jacob Corley for ho hosting us on the Digital Wildcatters platform. With that, we will wrap up episode nine. And the next one will be number 10, which is a nice little milestone, Tricia. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I will, Leslie, I was actually on the Oil and Gas Startups podcast. I'm pretty proud of that because it took me a long time to get on that. So if you haven't listened to it, that's the that's Jake and Colin's main podcast. It was super fun. We'll get we'll get Ethan on there someday soon. Thank you very much, Ethan. It was a blast and I appreciate it. Okay, we'll see you next time, folks. Bye.